Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Did you ever want to go to college, or you, once you got a taste of this, you just wanted to I do was, it? I did not, and you can't do it nowadays, and I would tell people it's the wrong thing to not want to go to college. But I just didn't like school, and I was more aggressive in what I did, and more hardworking, and more motivated when I wasn't in school than when I was in school. So that's kind of how that all evolved, and I pushed and got another job, and then another job after that. From 94 WIP, it's Wired This Way, the life stories of the top sports personalities in Philadelphia, the choices they've made, and how they've achieved their success. I'm Andrew Porter. On today's show, I sit down with Howard Eskin, a man who has hosted nearly seven thousand radio shows including the very first show on 610 WIP AM in 1986 and the very first show on 94 WIP FM in 2011. He's known for insults like a genius and you're a dope and you're an idiot and a nitwit and he's also known for his fur coats his horrendous spelling on Twitter and his hatred for Sam Hinkie. Eskin has done everything from TV to radio to reporting to everything in between. He's been covering sports in this town for nearly four decades. And somewhere along the way, Howard picked up the nickname King, a nickname he says he did not give to himself. Well, Pete Rose kind of embedded it in me because it was a guy that did TV who nobody will remember at Channel 3. And he did a story, he did a story on me, and he called me the king of sports talkers in Philadelphia. So Pete Rose never misses, never missed a beat. He saw everything. So I guess he saw it. So I walked into the clubhouse the next day, and Pete says, King, you're the king. And then he called me king every day from that point on. Then other players started calling me king. Then other people started calling me King. I never, ever gave myself, anybody that gives themselves their own nickname, hear that, Joe? Anybody that gives themselves their own nickname are frauds. King James, fraud. He gave himself the nickname. Uh, But, so Pete called me, and now, I mean, I get it all over the country. It, It just, I never called myself the King. It was Pete that really embedded it. In people. What about the the fur coat, um, the king of bling, and that whole that whole period of time? Did you want to create an image with, with your with your dress, or that just was organic, or how that? Well, happen? when I did TV, I like to dress well, right? Because too many people on TV dress like slobs, so I, I like to dress well. Too many people in the business now, we just look at the media, and they just half of them look like homeless people, uh, but. <laughs> Actually, homeless people dress better. <laughs> they get better stuff that are thrown their way. Uh, but no, I, so I went to an event uh, that was sponsored by a company called Zinman Furs. 
And the Eagles players modeled fur coats and shearlings, which is a form of, you know, a fur coat. Mm -hmm. uh, they modeled them, and somebody saw me there, and I was just there to cover it. And they called me up on the air and said, uh, and they said, King, uh, why, <clears throat> why weren't you wearing a fur coat? <clears throat> I said, I'm a short white guy. Short white guys can't wear fur coats. So um, I'm not as short as Sylvester Stallone, but I'm not considered tall. Um, so I said, no, nah, I can't wear a fur coat. So then people started pushing me on the air to wear a fur coat. And I said, you're kidding me, right? No, no, no. So I got up enough courage to wear a full-length fur coat, and the game was perfect. It was a Dallas game. It was 10 degrees. It was really cold. And I had a full-length fur coat, a mink fur coat with a mink hat, and the inquirer put it in the paper. And then all of a sudden, it just took off. And then people started calling up. You know, I wear nice watches and nice clothing. Somebody called me the king of bling. So that kind of stuck a little bit. And the fur coach just became, just became a thing. So then I started doing uh, billboards and commercials for Zim and Furs. I was on a billboard with Javon Curse, uh, former Eagle. Uh, which was crazy <laughs> yeah, I'm with, I'm with the with the the big brother uh and i'm selling fur coats it was crazy but i was kind of pushed into it by the people on the air and then it became a shtick and now to this day when it's even if it's 40 degrees king where's your fur coat no right. no you know, where's your fur coat? What about Mortal Lock? Did that um, stem from your childhood and, and like a, a gambling past? You've always been into like the gambling scene. Well, a little I was bit, the but... original Vegas Vic, right. In the Daily News, right? So they came to me, talked about it with Stan Hockman, and you know, I, I bet at the time I didn't bet a lot, but right. I just I knew all the numbers and knew all the so, and it really took off. So uh, you know, in gambling, a stone cold Mortal Lock was just. Mortal lock is kind of a term, and a stone-cold mortal lock just became more of a term, and I don't know if anybody else had it. But by the way, that's my trademark in the trademark right, that's in patent I, office. And uh, they're actually the office. I passed by it when the Eagles were down there because we stayed in Virginia. And I passed by the office, which is in, Al I think it's Alexandria, Virginia. Uh -huh. uh, so it's in there, and uh, I just renewed my rights uh, of that being my trademark or being a trademark that I own, uh, Stone Cold Mortal Lock. Howard was born in 1951 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and quickly became passionate about sports thanks to his dad. However, after attending Northeast High School, Howard never went to college. He quickly burst onto the Philadelphia sports media scene and stuck with it, a decision he says he would not recommend for people today. I was born in Mount Airy and moved when I was probably about seven years old to Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, but that's all right. I remember a little bit of Mount Airy, uh, but yeah, really my life was probably developed in Northeast Philadelphia. What was your childhood like in Northeast Philadelphia? Um, were you into sports, involved in sports? What, were you, what was it like? You know what, that, that's what's amazing. My father, and I really, uh, may rest in peace. And I remember while he was sick, he, he wanted to make a point how influential he was with what I'm doing in my life. 
my father uh, was very active in sports and really loved sports. I remember he played softball, bowling, you, you name it. My father played it. I don't know what he did in high school. I never got to that point. But he uh, he was probably, as far as sports, probably the most influential in my life. Now, I obviously love sports. Uh, was it because my father got me started on that? And uh, really, it was all about, it was sports probably took away from, I was an average student, probably took away from me being a student. But more than anything else, uh, I guess my father got me interested and I just loved to go to the ball games with him. I just, uh, he was a uh, season ticket holder uh, for the Sixers. So I went to a lot of games with him there. Took me to a lot of Phillies games. Remember Connie Mack Stadium. I remember Connie Mack. When I see pictures, I remember it like, you know, like I'm still there. But I was very, very interested in sports, and I said probably more so because of my dad. Did you play sports or you were just? Yeah, I played it, but I, I didn't play very much. So, uh, but I did play it. But I played it in the intramural areas more than anything else. Played baseball all the time. I was always a part of uh, intramurals uh, with baseball. Uh, football, there was, when I grew up, there was no intramurals in football. Uh, not any real, anything really to speak of. Uh, not hockey. I never skated in my life. Skated one time in Edmond when the Flyers were out there. And that's the last time I ever got on skates because I realized I couldn't skate. And then, uh, and basketball, again, at a level, the junior varsity team, but on a level that... Uh, was not, but I played hard. That's that's all. It's kind of, if anything, now that I think about it, if anything, it created a uh, uh, a desire to try to do to work as hard as you can to be the best you can, which kind of spilled over tremendously into what I'm doing in my career. But yeah, I just uh, did. You I would play as much sisters? as I could. Uh, yeah, I had uh, three sisters and a brother. Uh, were they involved in sports? Not as much as me, but my sisters were very are very big Phillies fans and Sixers fans. Uh, not football fans as much, but uh, Sixers and Phillies. Uh, not as much football. But I used to go uh, go down the. They had a ticket office at 30th Street, uh, across from the 30th Street station. I used to go to down to buy Eagles tickets to make sure that I went uh, as many times as I could go. Your dad didn't work in sports, right? He no, and it was a truck body place, but he loved sports. Yeah, it was wow. my grandfather's business, which my father took over. Um, high school. Now you go to Northeast High School, um, and what did you did you start to um, like? Did your passion for sports develop at Northeast, or well, yeah? Here's what I'm trying to you know I've I've thought about that. Was it I would have done anything for a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything. I never really thought about broadcasting. Uh, I'm not a college graduate, but I never really thought about broadcasting. I thought while I was in high school of just working for a team. That's all I wanted to do is I wanted to work for a team. It, it almost in back in back then, uh, the Phillies, uh, as bad as they were in the sixties, but they started to get better in the seventies. But that was not my high school years. In the 60s, I don't remember him ever being really good. <clears throat> and 
the Sixers were, and I wanted to work for them. They won a, <clears throat> they won, excuse me, they won a championship in the 66 or 67, 66, 67 season. So I remember that team went to all the, I mean, as many games as I could go to, all the playoff games. I remember when they beat the Boston Celtics. I, I remember all that. They won uh, on the road uh, to win the, uh, they won the, on the road in 83. In 66, 67, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, I don't know if they won here, but I remember the games that they won at Convention Hall. So I always used to go down to Convention Hall and uh, watch watch the games there, and then the Spectrum came around after that, but that was after I was out of high school. Did your dad want you to work for the company business, or did he, was he into you working in sports? How, how did that My go? father yeah. didn't really care where I worked. My grandfather, that was his business, wanted right. me to work for the business. So I used to go on Saturdays, and uh, that was not was not my cup of tea. Somehow, some way, I wanted to be involved in sports. So um, it kind of developed. I got lucky, and I, I didn't work in sports. When I worked in radio, I worked seven years doing everything else, whether it was a disc jockey, whether it was an engineer, engineer spinning records, uh, whether it was a production engineer. I worked for a classical station in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, I was in, I'd been in the White House while I was working, I've done a lot of things, but I never got interested in in sports when I was working for the Washington Station. But I was always interested, and I was always come back home uh, to do that. But no, I just uh, so you you started in in local radio right out of high school, right? Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, w F I L A M. No, no. I started at a station in the first job was W H F S, which was in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, it's now W. Those call letters are somewhere else. They went to Baltimore. I think they're in Florida, uh, somewhere. Uh, and uh, I was there. It was a middle of the road music station. I was help. I was really an engineer, but then a staff announcer. And how did you get in there through Northeast High School? Like after Northeast High School? Well, I knew somebody from the area down there. Okay. So he just got me a job. Mm-hmm. He just got me a job in there, and. Uh, I remember progressive rock, as it was called back then. MMR, WMMR, might take credit for the first progressive rock station in the country. Nope. It was WHFS. These, and they were called hippies. Back in the day, they were called hippies. Just came in and bought six hours from the radio station. And just wanted, and all of them that I worked with were in the movie Woodstock. They all went up to Woodstock. They were all part of it. And they were all big in the country. So, because they couldn't operate the controls, I went and operated the controls for them. And uh, it was the, I worked at the first, they were the first, at that time, it was called Progressive Rock Radio Station in the United States of America. Uh, I think MMR was slightly thereafter when they played a lot of that music. I mean, I remember playing records like Ultimate Spinach, which is Eric Clapton. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you have all these guys that developed that came from other groups but I was doing music. I worked at a station in Fairfax, Virginia. I worked at a station in Atlantic City. Uh, this is I was the district. 70s or 80s? Uh, this was in Atlantic City. was in the early, yeah, mm-hmm. in the 70s. So I worked at a station in Atlantic City spinning records. I was a disc jockey at a, uh, a top 40 station in Gaithersburg, Maryland, outside of Washington on the weekends. I remember Rod Stewart came in and he was promoting an album. 
This was right before Maggie May, which was his first hit. Maggie May was his first big hit because he was playing a place down there called the Wheaton Youth Center. So he came in to promote a record, and we went out and partied that night. Rod Stewart before he was Rod Stewart. So that was kind of a cool experience as well. I met uh, Led Zeppelin. I met a lot of those groups through that radio station. But I did a lot. And then, uh, then after all that, in Atlantic City I was working. After all those little stations, then I got a job at WFIL <clears throat> spinning records. I actually worked at KWW Radio for a little while as an engineer. And I was spinning records at WFIL for the guys, for the disc jockeys on the air. So that was in, uh, you know, the years, I guess it was in like 72-ish. Right. 72-ish. And and that's where I got to meet Jim O'Brien, for people in Philadelphia you know him, George Michael of the George Michael Sports Machine. Got to know those guys. And one day I went on the air and Jim O'Brien said, you should be doing this, you know, and it's just... Did you ever want to go to college, or you once you got a taste of this, you just wanted to do I was, it? I did not, and you can't do it nowadays, and I would tell people it's the wrong thing to not want to go to college. But I just didn't like school, and I was more aggressive in what I did and more hardworking and more motivated when I wasn't in school than when I was in school. So that's kind of how that all evolved and I pushed and got another job and then another job after that and from WFIL radio I went to 1210 radio which at that time was WCAU radio which is now WPHT mm-hmm. in our area and I replaced Joe Banner the Joe Banner who was a sports reporter we did a two-hour show at night from 10 to midnight and I was a sports reporter and I got the job to replace Joe who wanted to go back uh, home to the Boston area and start a business. So, so I worked there for a couple of years, and then I, from there, I went to a talk FM station. I was the first one in this market. Everybody can say what they want to work FM talk because I did it on WWDB, which was ninety six point five at the time, and and then in like a year, it became number one in its time period. It was going against Steve Fredericks, and <clears throat> I don't know how that all happened, but I just evolved as a sports talk guy and learned not to be nice to everybody not that I wanted to be mean to everybody but so that was a uh, uh, that really kind of kicked me in to the next level of television mm-hmm. which was channel three I never applied for a television job in my life never never which is amazing channel three called and asked me if I wanted to do the sports for them and I said no I'm I don't feel like I'm ready. I told Jim O'Brien, who I was spinning records for, and he said, if you don't take this job, I'll kick your ass because you'll never get this opportunity again. Well, one thing led to another. I went for an audition in New York. I still have the tape. I've never looked at it since. It was horrible. Uh, but they knew what they wanted. Uh, they felt that I would get better. And uh, so I got a job at Channel 3. And September 20th was my first day on the air, 1982. And the NFL players called a strike. My first night in television, they called a strike at 5.09. And then it was only a 6 o'clock news. And I had to go on the air and had to get information to report on it at 6 o'clock. So I was the lead story 
of the first time I was ever in television at Channel 3. In 1983, then Eagles owner Leonard Toast had lost a lot of money gambling. Howard Eskin broke the story that Toast was looking to sell the organization, a move that he would eventually accomplish in 1985, selling the Eagles to Norman Brayman. I knew he lost a fortune in Atlantic City. And, uh, you know, I checked a lot of things, did a lot of work, and working on the story for a few weeks and broke the story, and I was just crucified for, with, from, by people. Jim O'Brien was even mad at me. He says, they just want you to do this story. I said, Jim, it's the right story. And he just, he, he's gone broke, and he's going to have to sell the team. So the first story was selling the team. And then in the midst of all that, he tried to uh, move to Phoenix, and I didn't know all the dynamics of, of what he was going to get from them financially. So I mentioned that, and there was a producer at Channel 3, uh, Frank Trainer. I'll never forget Frank, who said if it wasn't for Howard Eskin, the Eagles would be in Arizona. I don't know that that would have happened. I don't know that it would have gotten to that point, but they were real close because that was the only way for him to continue to own the team. And it didn't work, and then he sold the team and, you know, all kinds of – I took all kinds of crap over that, but it was the right story. It was the right story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first four months into television. You know, I break the biggest story in Philadelphia in probably 30, uh, Philadelphia sports. I don't know about, you know, from the news side in 30 years. I mean, it was the biggest story in 30 years. So it was just something that when I was on radio, I broke a lot of stories. I, I'll give you another story. When I was at WWDB, Ryan Sandberg would have never been a Chicago Cub if it wasn't for me because the Phillies, Larry Bowe wanted a new contract from the Phillies. And if he didn't get it, he wanted to be traded. This was 1982, I think it was. Whatever year it was, 1982. And so I called him up during a commercial break while I was on the air at WWDB. I said, so, okay, you talked to Bill Giles. What's, what's up? He says, they're trading me. I said, what? He says, they want to give me a contract. They're trading me. So he knew the whole deal. So we went on the air and talked about it. You know, he was nice enough to come on the air after the break uh, and talk about it, and all hell broke loose with the Phillies. So the original deal did not have Ryan Sandberg in the deal. It was Boa and a catcher by the name of Keith Moreland for Yvonne De Jesus, and I don't know who else. And Bo was telling you all this on the air. Yeah, he's <laughs> telling me this all on the air. Before they even... He's breaking the story. He's breaking yeah. the story that he was going to be traded and what it was. So the next morning I heard from Paul Owens, I heard from people who Paul Owens was livid because he was the general manager of the Phillies. He worked with Dallas Green. And the Cubs called and said, they can't do the deal. Yvonne De Jesus is a fan favorite and they're going nuts in Chicago. Can't do the deal. So the deal was called off. So three weeks later, they still tried to work out a deal and the Phillies, knowing Ron Sandberg was not going to, they had they, their infield was stocked, and he couldn't play short. He didn't have the arm to play shortstop. Schmidt was still at third. They had a second baseman, so there was no place to put him. So they put Ryan Sandberg. I remember Super Scout, as he was called, Yui Alexander, said because he ended up working with Dallas Green for the Cubs, uh, and Dallas went and worked for the Cubs, but he didn't do that deal because he was going to get a job with the Cubs. So three weeks later, they reworked the deal and put Ryan Sandberg in the deal, which wasn't in the original deal. 
So if Larry Bo, if I hadn't made that call to Larry Bo during a break, <laughs> and Larry hadn't come on the air with me and told everybody what the deal was going to be, and the Cubs hadn't called it off, Ryan Sandberg would have never become a Chicago Cub. Wow, wow, that's history. <laughs> so you know, so there's, so I felt good about breaking stories. Those yeah. are the kind of things that, that you know, that, that I always thought were. It was a sense of, uh, uh, really, a sense of achievement. You know, when you would break stories. I mean, anybody can just go on the air, but breaking right. stories was really what I really enjoyed. In 1986, I hear you launched the first, the very first sports talk show on 610 WIP. What was that like in doing like a full sports talk show in in the 80s? Was it like, you well, know, was that difficult? I'll tell you how this hack happened. 1986, I went to work for Channel 29 and all we had was a 10 o'clock news. So there was a, uh, the general manager uh, of WIP and MMR at the time, owned by the same company. It was Metromedia at that time. Owned by the same company. Uh, I worked with, when he was a salesman at WFIL Radio, and I was, you know, but I always kind of got to know everybody. And his idea, I was, uh, is to do, now that I'm working only at 10 o'clock news, is to do sports talk. It was his, the guy's name is Mike Craven. Mm-hmm. And Mike wanted to turn WIP into an all sports station. That was his idea. And, and people can tell you a lot of other things. It was Mike Craven's idea. And because I was successful in sports talk at the FM station at WWDB, he said, would you do? And I did a hit with John DeBella in the morning for MMR. Uh, I think I was doing that. Uh, I was doing that before because, uh, when uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, all my history and the things I did. But anyway, I did a hit with the bell in the morning and they put a broadcast line at my house. And then Mike said, well, you're only doing a 10 o'clock news. At first, it was five days a week, an hour and a half a day doing sports talk. Would you do that? I said, sure. You know, I've done this before. I enjoy it. So that's how it all started in 1986. It was August. I think it was 29th. August 29th of 1986, uh, we started doing sports talk on WIP, which was news, music, all kinds of different uh, things at the time. And then he put more things in, and then they had the morning sports page with different sports writers were on from 9 to 10 in the morning. I don't know if it was six months. I don't know if it was a year after that. It might have been a year after that. They started to put more elements of sports talk in the station. He wanted to see how it would go first with me in the afternoon. So... Yeah, it was the first uh, sports talk uh, show on WIP, AM, 610 AM. I did it on AM. I didn't have the luxury of doing it on FM and became, you know. And 25 years later, you're doing, you know, three to seven drive time radio. You're doing 6,000 shows. But here's what's great. Yeah, I'm up to like, I I figured it out. I'm keeping totals. I'm like 6,700 shows now. I had a... uh, a party for my 5,000 show, which was September of 2007. But what's great is when I decided after 25 years, because I did, I filled in for Dan Patrick and the, and the guy that was running his syndication talked about national radio. And I said, well, let me try something else uh, because I've done pretty much everything. So let me try something else. And I was thinking about it and I didn't know where I was going to do it. I said, all right, I'm done. Um, uh, they wanted to keep me on in some way, which they did. 
but because three months before I left is when they knew I was going to leave, I asked because I don't know when the decision was made to go to FM to 94.1, but I asked because it was supposed to be the, uh, the Monday of Labor Day, uh, I guess is which was Labor Day, and the morning show was supposed to do the first show on FM. So I asked because my last show was the Friday before that Monday, can we start it on Friday? It was the, all the things were in place. Can we start it on Friday? And can I do the first show on ninety four point one FM? So I did the first show on the AM, and I did the first show on the FM. So that's that's part of my history, and the rest is history. And then all these other things happen, and then I started doing more TV. It yeah. just you know it just. I just don't stop. You did a, a bunch of, a, I guess, what two, three years with Ike, co-hosting with Ike. Yeah. You did. A, you co-hosted with a, with other people too, but mo- mostly it was by yourself. From three, did you enjoy yeah. being by yourself? It mostly? didn't matter to me. Okay. You know, it, you know. Now sports talk. Everybody believes that two man shows are better. Mm-hmm. That's all right. Yeah, I was, I was number one. I remember because I got a bonus. Uh, the general manager at the time, Mark Rayfield, didn't want to give me as much money as. That, that I knew I was worth. So I always work something out. So I said, all right, give me bonuses. So, and there was a bonus for three straight books of being number one. Never did he think that I would achieve it. It was a big number. 25 Uh, and older. uh, Yeah. 25 to 54 men. Yeah. That was our demo. That was our target demo. Mm -hmm. So it was three straight books that on AM, all this, you know, now everybody, and they understand there's, it's a shame that AM is, I won't call it a graveyard because there's still some good stations on AM around the country and there's mm-hmm. a couple here in Philadelphia that are owned by our company. Uh, but no, it was, uh, yeah, I did it on AM. I did it on AM. Where, uh, where, yeah. No, it's just, so when I think about all these people on FM, but I did the first sports talk show in Philadelphia on FM back uh, from 79 to 82. Behind all the nitwits, the geniuses, the name-calling, the arguments, the hard work, and the passion for sports is Howard Eskin's passion to help others. When it comes to the king, one thing that has been underreported is his generosity. Howard has donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to multiple organizations. The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Terry Lynn Lykoff Child Care Foundation, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. Most recently, Howard has helped raise over $50,000 for the Eagles Autism Challenge as well. Every bet on the air, every conversation is for charity, and throughout his entire career, Howard has made sure to help give back to everyone. I remember Julia Serving said to me one time, Part of our responsibility is to help people because we have the platform and the ability uh, being who we are to help people. So I never forget, he said, we were in an event one night and he, he said that to me. So I always felt that that's part of my responsibility uh, to help. So it started with the bobblehead. People started me with a bobblehead. Howard, why don't you have a bobblehead? So there's a company in New Jersey, and I made sure it's not like the bobbleheads you see nowadays, where they look like anybody. Could look like I just put a name on it. It looked like anybody. What's the ball players? Whether whatever most bobbleheads because they're cheap. Mine was 
over three times the cost of the other bobbleheads, but I wanted to make sure it looked like me. What year was that? Um, oh, heck, I don't even know. Probably early 90s sometime, and I had, you know, I was very meticulous at how this bobblehead looked and changed some of the things. And So it came out with a bobblehead that had real mink on the bobblehead. So I got real mink to put on the bobbleheads, limited edition, sold them inexpensive enough, there were 2,000 of them where they sold out, and sold out the first year in nine days, the second year in six days, sold out. And then uh, I did some things with them to, to generate more money. In two years, I raised over $70,000 on two editions of bobbleheads. Wow. It was great. I mean, one of them just had a mink coat and was sponsored by a company. One of them had a diamond necklace with real diamonds in the necklace, real diamond chips. So I did, you know, I just try to do something right. and people to this day still want me to do another bobblehead. I've got an idea for another bobblehead, but it was such a major, major, major undertaking. But this one would be the, the all time bobblehead. And now like every bet or fun thing you do on the air, it's always charity. It's always something with charity. That's just, it's part of you now, right? Yeah. Like, and I just, I'm involved. And again, I don't know when people hear this, the Eagles have a bike ride. Uh, the Eagles autism challenge is what it's being called. Jeffrey Lurie's brother is autistic. I have a nephew uh, who's autistic. But the Eagles have been so good to me, and the Flyers now want me to ride in theirs to try to help to raise money. And I said, okay. And I thought, well, I'll try to raise $10,000. I'm up as we speak right now, close to $54,000 in money I've raised, and I'm not done yet. My goal is to get to at least $60,000. So that's really what... Uh, what I've done and I put a lot of effort into it and just when I do things I just do it full bore and it's a if you're going to do it do it right I'm second on the list of fundraisers with all the Eagles people and all the people involved I'm second on the list I don't know that I can get the number one but it's something to shoot for as for his own family Howard has five children all of whom have achieved a great deal of success his son, Brett Eskin, better known as Spike, is the program director for 94WIP, where Howard still hosts a weekly Saturday morning show and is an active guest on other shows as well. So technically, Howard's boss is his son, Spike. Two of them in L.A. One, unfortunately, is here at WIP. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, he's not. He did it, on a, he did it by himself. Uh, you know, I, I didn't never, I never directed my kids where to go, what to do, or um, it's it was their choice. So it was his choice. I mean, he was uh, disc jockey at times, you know, for some time at YSP, and then it evolved into WIP. So he said at one time when CBS wanted to hire him to be a management person, I was asked by the people in New York, and I asked him, do you want to be on the air or do you want to be in management? Because they wanted to make sure if they were going to hire him as the program director. So he told me, he said, I don't want to walk down the street and people know who I am. Well, that changed after he realized. But whatever, for whatever reason, because of this station, those things happen. But that's okay. He still does the, the main thing he does. He does to the best of his ability. So, uh, but no, it's just... So he's in the business, 
my daughter is, uh, has a very successful career in, adver- in the advertising agency. The next a kid is uh, working for Disney doing movies. He's worked on some big movies, Beauty and the Beast, uh, the new Mary Poppins movie he's worked on. He's been to London there, Thor, which he's gone to Australia for. Steven Spielberg called him into the office to compliment him on some work he did on one of his films. So, so he's in media kind of. Then uh, my other son works for a digital company. He's doing very well with that. And then my daughter is a music major in her second year at Syracuse. So wow. it's kind of... Do you think your success, them seeing that, pushed, pushed them a little bit? Or do you think there's, I a, think there's a trickle the, down effect? I know I was influenced by my father's hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father worked hard. Uh, there's always people that influence you. Jim O'Brien worked hard. He influenced me. But I would, I don't, they can only answer that but they saw how hard I worked. I never felt that I was there around them enough, but they were, they were okay with it. They're okay with it now. So maybe the influence, you know, their, their mother obviously uh, had a lot to do with and sending them to the right schools. I never even thought about sending them all to private school and college, but I never, but I did what I could and it all worked out and they're all successful. So my daughter's doing great at Syracuse. At 66 years old, Howard is still going strong. He has 120,000 Twitter followers where he is extremely active, periscoping press conferences, promoting his charity work, and publishing hot takes. He also has started his own podcast, the Howard Eskin Podcast, where he has interviewed big-time sports personalities like Emmett Smith, Charles Barkley, Matt Ryan, and Michael Vick, among others. Howard still works as a sports anchor for Fox 29, and his Saturday morning radio show on 94WIP is live from the Borgata. It still has that same old Howard-esque feel of the 90s. Here's the thing, here's the thing with, uh, with Twitter. Um, they're really, it's really a haven for haters. It's a lot of people who are haters on Twitter, and I call a lot of them Twittiots, because, you know, they just, they have this forum to just rip you for no reason, and you don't know who they are. Well, that's all well and good. So my kids told me I should be on Twitter, and I went on Twitter, and I never knew I'd have like 120,000 followers now. I mean, who would have thought that? But I use it to pass along information, break stories, uh, I respond to people a lot. I do different things. I'm using Twitter now to try to help me raise money for uh, the Eagles to sponsor my bike ride. So uh, there's kind of keeps things. you on the clock 24 seven. Yeah, and it just then I've done more things on. I don't really do a lot on Facebook, uh, but and on Instagram. But I've kind of connected with those because people mm-hmm. want them. But Twitter is really uh, the best source for me. But social media is a part. It's a part of life. There's there's nothing you're going to do to change it now. I think the problem with social media is people put things out there which they know are incorrect, then other people report them, not bothering to check them because it's on social media. Um, Two more. How much luck do you think is involved in your success and how much of it's hard work and diligence and work ethic? I think you got to have luck to get certain opportunities. But once you get that opportunity you got to have hard work, responsibility and hard work. You can be lucky to get a job and 
I guess I was lucky to get the job at Channel 3 when I never worked television in my life in 1982. But I really did a good job, and that led to many other things, and it kind of it started to blow up my career in a good way. And then when I went to Channel 29 and I started doing, I was writing for the Daily News, I was on MMR, I was on WIP, and I was on Channel 29. Uh, it, it just, it, things kind of blew up, but... You have to get lucky to get certain opportunities, but once you get that opportunity, you got to work hard to move forward. And that's a big part of it. You're connected with everyone in the city, athletes, coaches, media. Is social relationships, is that is that like a key to your success or, or anyone's success really in, in the workplace? I think it's important if you want to break stories, if you want to get information, not necessarily breaking stories, information, which when I have an opinion, it's based on people in those games that have told me certain things. So, um, yeah, it's just, you're around them all. I, I go to the practices. I mean, whatever day it may be, if there's a practice or there's something, I go to all the Eagles practices. So with all that, yeah, you get to know the players and you get to talk to the players, not just about the sport, but about other things. Uh, recently, Connor Barwin had a, another uh ribbon cutting at a playground he helped um financially to put it together so connor connor asked me if i'd stop by uh smith playground in south philadelphia he asked me if i'd stop by and i've been to his others too and i certainly and connor was always nice to me brent sella came a few of the eagles came so and they really appreciate that and the other players see that but it's not hard for me to go there it just takes time any regrets any any moments you look back on and you would you know change the way you did this, change the way you did that. No, you can't. Route. It's too easy to say you have regrets and, and you can't have everything perfect. Right. I always believed if there was a negative, it turns every negative has a positive. So uh, you just there's always there's always a positive to everything. Sometimes it takes a while and there's a negative to every positive. No, you can't look back and say no. I would have done this differently. I would have done that differently. Uh, are there things I would have done differently? Possibly. Um, none of them come to mind right now, but there are things. Uh, but nothing that really, uh, yeah, I mean, you may have said things, you may have done things. No, uh, I just, because, uh, you know, I'm lucky doing what I'm doing. I'm lucky I consider myself successful. And with that, you know, I, I don't think that I would change things. Howard Eskin of 94WIP. Thanks again for listening to Wired This Way. Please subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Tweet me about the show at A-N-D underscore Porter. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, please email me at andrew.porter at entercom.com. That's E-N-T-E-R-C-O-M dot com. And thanks again to Eric the Turtle Golden who helped produce the show. Coming up next, it's the Hall of Famer Ray Didinger, maybe the only universally loved sports personality in Philadelphia media. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.